Hello, and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hey, Jason. How's it going? It's going. It's going pretty well. We are still remote. I am worried we're going to be remote for longer than we want to be remote, but uh, we're here. We're doing okay. And uh, we got a cool topic today, Todd. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that's come out of this uh, unique situation and the shelter in place and everything is there's a lot of riders out there, and, you know, across all levels, the amateurs, professional that are taking on this challenge that we call Everesting, which is to climb a total ascent on your ride of Mount Everest. So 29,028 feet. And to do that all on a single climb. So it's a pretty uh, ambitious endeavor. It's a, a lot to a lot to bite off, uh, depending on your you know your fitness level, experience, and everything. Um, and there, you know, I don't know if you follow Jason, but there's been some pretty impressive numbers posted in terms of how long folks have you know or how how short of time folks have gotten it done in. And so I thought it'd just be interesting to discuss a little bit. I uh, may break it down by a number as discuss some of the science, even some things that we've discussed before from the nutrition and performance and all that standpoint of kind of what, what does it take to do that? But more from a mere mortal standpoint than, uh, than from an elite professional. Yeah. So I've, I've been following Phil Guyman's attempt and not many other people, but I know that he, I watched the video on his attempt. I know there are some pretty specific rules about it has to be the same climb and essentially you have to go up and down it. Um, and the descents are included in the amount of time it takes, but it has to be one climb. You just do it over and over again until you hit at least, you know, the, the height of Everest. I think this is interesting. I actually know an amateur who did this a while ago, two or three years ago, and they were not a climber and they, they, it took the entire day and they started right when the sun came up, but they also said it was very rewarding. So it, it would be cool if, if we're all sort of stuck unable to race or unable to do necess- like group rides or things like that. It could be a cool challenge if you're up for these ultra endurance type challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've seen some riders doing some u- unique things in terms of uh, fundraising, like taking pledges and donations and everything for a certain cause as they go out and, and challenge themselves to this. So with that said, I guess I'll, I'll jump in. And I think, you know, my first thought when I was you know, I'm like thinking like, okay, well, if I were to do this, like, how would I go about that? And being scientific, like, well, let's, let's break this down. And so the first thing I said, well, uh, what's the optimal climb? What's the optimal place to do this? Like, you know, not that I get to go, not that I would go travel, right. I'd pick a local climb or something, but you know, what, what would be the characteristics of that climb that would make it optimal? I hate to use the word easier, but maybe uh, more favorable uh, for an attempt like this. And so I just, I just started with some math, obviously distance matters, right? Like you don't want to have to ride 500 miles to get to your 29,000 and change feet of elevation gain. So, you know, you, you have to pick a hill that's going to be steep enough that you can do it in a reasonable amount of time. So just for, for kicks, I started to calculate at 1% grade all the way up how far you would have to go. And so in terms of a, a 1% gradient, the total distance you'd have to climb is almost 550 miles. Um, and so of course you have to descend that climb. So now you're talking about over a thousand miles if you would do this on a constant 1% gradient. So all right, that's that's out the door. Um, so that now, would be like five days for your Everest attempt if, if you didn't uh, really stop. I mean, I don't know, but 1% is not very steep. So 
you know, you probably go fast-ish, but still, it's a long, it's a long time. Sure. Right? Okay. A couple of days. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, if, if you, you know, just make life easy, if you average 20 miles an hour, you know, for that distance, it would be, let's see, 50 hours, 55 hours. So sure. yeah, you're on to, on to day three at 20 miles an hour the whole time. So it's unrealistic uh, to do a shallow climb. Right. But, like but then, you know. Not to ruin it, but I think a, a really steep climb is something I'd be concerned about because the muscle fatigue would be right. incredible. Right, unless you had incredibly low gears, uh, you know, that's not feasible either. So then if you keep going, obviously 2% grade takes half as far as that, and a, a 4% grade is a quarter of 1% grade. So at, at 4% grade, you're looking at 137 miles of climbing or you know 275 miles round trip. So it's more doable. That's still really far to ride. Like just the sheer distance um, sort of gets in the way. And so now if you keep going, you know, so, okay, say 6%, that's 91 miles of climbing, 183 round trip, 8%, 69 miles or 138 round trip. And like now this gets into like distances that we've ridden in the day sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and 8% is a stiff gradient but not undoable for a long time, right? I and mean, that's similar. That's in the ballpark of some of our local climbs, Kings Mountain, Old Bond are in that ballpark around seven to 8%. So I think ideally, depending on what, you know, what you have available to you, something in the seven to 9% range is probably what makes it doable in terms of just the overall distance that you have to ride to get the climbing in. Sure, and I would also warn against uh, pitchy climbs. I think if if the average is seven percent, and there are some four percent sections, there are some nine percent sections, some eleven percent sections, then we still get to accumulate that muscle fatigue in very high doses from those steeper pitches. So try and also pick an even climb. Yes, I would totally agree. I think that makes sense. You want to have your seven percent average be as close to you know seven percent the entire way, as opposed to pitching up and down. I think the other thing I would do is like avoid a descent within the climb, right? Because that implies there's some steeper part that you have to manage at some point. Sure. And, and, then, and also some climb on the descent that you have to manage, depending on how long that downhill is. Did you look into the length of the climb and the effect of that? For example, is it unrealistic to do a two-minute climb at the perfect 7% over and over and over again? Is it better to do five-minute efforts, 10-minute efforts, 20-minute efforts? Oh, good, good question. So I had, I had a thought on that. Um, I mean, I think with too short of a climb, you didn't spend too much time turning around in circles, right? Like you can make yourself dizzy almost. Um, so I think to longer is better to a point. And my mental calculation on this, right? Cause I think you want to get into a rhythm, right? You want to get into a rhythm on a climb. You want to be able to do that time and time again. And sort of my head was that you want the round trip to take not more than one bottle if you can do it right because if you're going uphill all day long you probably don't want to have to carry two full bottles if you can avoid it so yeah so the the length is determined by the opportunity to refuel yeah i think that's the key right presumably you want to park your car at the bottom and put a cooler and whatever food you have there and if it's if the climb's too long you can't carry enough fuel on your bike and your jersey and i imagine that you don't you don't want to carry anything extra right 
Like you don't want to have to be your, you know, Jersey pockets stuffed full of gels and two, two water bottles or maybe one extra water bottle in your pocket to make one lap on the climb. Sure. Now, if you do like, you can imagine a place where maybe there's a, a, a state park or a, you know, a municipal water fountain along the way. And so maybe that factor is in like, okay, well I can stop and refill. But of course, if you have to stop and refill, that's going to add to your time. Right? Yeah. That's you'd have to look at the, over uh, a day. you'd have to look at the rate of refilling for the water bottle. Um, yes. I would probably say under, you know, a hundred, uh, cubic, uh, I don't actually know. But if but it's a you, if it's a very slow water fountain, obviously that's really going to start to add up the minutes. And I we're going to talk about fuel in the later on in the episode. But thinking about the total amount of water consumed, it's going to be huge. So um, something like water fountain refilling, it, it seems kind of silly. But if you are actually trying to optimize this in a certain way, you don't realize that the water fountain filling slowly is tedious until the the eighth or ninth time that you've filled up a water bottle at it. Right. And not to mention, you're going to be fatigued and probably the last thing you want to do is get off your bike to start going again more than you have to. Yeah. So then I guess the other tip here is um, a lot of the more successful attempts, these faster attempts by professionals or uh, very athletic people, they, they'll have a support squad. So if you can somehow convince uh, your partner or um, your friend or someone to come out and hand you the bottles, you don't even have to get off the bike. They can hand it to you while you U-turn at the bottom or something. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Although I, I can also imagine that you probably are going to want to get off your bike and stretch or any, you're definitely going to have to have a nature break at some point if you're out there for 8, 9, 12, 15 hours longer, depending on uh, who you are and how fast you can go. So other other factors that I thought about in terms of like, well, so what's the perfect road? Probably some, somewhere it's shaded because you're going to be out there in the sun for presumably any long length of time during the day so if you can have a climb that has some shade that's probably valuable um you know also i thought not technical right like if you're if you're winding up a hill at eight nine ten miles an hour or whatever pace you're going that's not a big deal but you have to turn around and descend and you know potentially descend a hill and how long it is 10 15 20 times if it's technical that's going to wear on you right if you're getting tired towards the end um, just from a safety perspective, I think that's an important consideration. Sure. And and the other thing, if if we are trying to optimize for speed, a more technical downhill will also be slower. So there is that to take to consider is the the speed of the descent in order to get back to the starting point again. Yeah, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure, sure there's, there's some some, some optimization, optimization there. there. I mean, in terms, terms of like absolute, absolute speed of your attempt, the like straightest, fastest descent is optimal. But in terms of actual recovery, it might behoove you to have a slightly slightly slower descent um just to give yourself a little bit more time i that i haven't worked out um but hmm. uh, you know I, I assume you know if, if you have a relatively non-technical or even a technical climb the the relative time descending to that of climbing is small right it's going to be a small fraction at the end of the day but why but why waste extra time on having an unnecessarily technical road Sure, and then also you could be fueling on the way down or hydrating, something like that. Right, so you, you, you have some disadvantages to that. And um, you mentioned a shaded climb would be good. Can we dive a little bit more into the temperature of the course? Sure, that, that's, that's where I was going to go. You know, this is like you have to find that Goldilocks zone, but you probably want to err on the colder side rather than the hotter side. 
um, right? Because you know if it's hotter, you're going to have to sweat more to manage your core temperature, and you can only possibly consume so much water. Um, and I mean, I don't know about you, Jason, but I know you know at some point if you're doing long long enough rides, you don't really want like food, water, all those things. At some point, consuming enough becomes a chore. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously you need to consume enough water to stay hydrated and enough food to stay fueled, but you don't want to have to be in an environment that's really hot where you have to be really forcing yourself to take in a lot of water to stay level with the needs for hydration. Yeah. So I, I remember reading a paper on the optimal temperature for marathon runners, and they mentioned that something actually like 40 degrees Fahrenheit is optimal like very very cold temperature because of the amount of body heat that's produced the other thing is that the average speed is slower so there's less convective cooling from the evaporation of the sweat so if i'm thinking about everesting the uphill part is really quite slow so you are going to get a lot of sweat so i think that a cold temperature would be advantageous and like you said leaning more towards cold would be a good idea because if it's hot, it is a chore to drink, food becomes less appetizing, and if we're thinking about in the long term, we're losing a lot of electrolytes, we're losing a lot of glycogen and glucose, we're also losing a lot of water. So those are the three things that we're going to need to consistently replace throughout the effort. If my body, if I have to force myself to drink, if I have to force myself to eat, it already makes this hard task even harder. So I, I think in a cool environment, it's a lot easier to eat, it's a lot easier to hydrate, and it's a lot easier to get those necessities down so you can c continue the effort and finish it off strong. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about was also, so you want probably lower temperature and then also lower relative humidity, right? Because as the humidity goes up, the evaporative cooling of your sweat is less effective, right? Because there's, there's already relatively high humidity in the air. So that sweat does not want to dry up off of you and it doesn't allow you to cool off very effectively. So if you can be a situation where it's relatively uh, lower humidity, that's also going to be helpful to help the sweat regulate your body temperature. So there's probably some inverse relationship, right? Like as the relative humidity goes up, you want the temperature to be relatively lower. As the relative humidity goes down, you, you'd be willing to accept a slightly higher temperature um, and not you know, not be concerned about having a negative effect. Yeah, and on the topic of relative humidity and also air pressure, I, I found it interesting that Bradley Wiggins and the, his crew, when he went for the hour record, they talked about how the air pressure and the relative humidity affected his attempt. And they thought he could hit 55 kilometers if, uh, if the weather was slightly different on that day. So it's interesting that I think um, Camp on Ertz was willing to push back a day or two depending mm -hmm. on the weather. So uh, taking into consideration things like that, I think if you're, if we're looking at an amateur attempt, it's hard to say, uh, tell your boss or, you know, take a, a random Wednesday off because the environmental factors are perfect. Right. The, the, the air pressure and the, the temperature are just right that day. Yeah. And like the storm's rolling in and you're like, this is the perfect low, low air pressure point. And, and you run out there to complete your 10-hour attempt or whatever it is. I, I think that's less realistic if, if we're thinking about an amateur attempt. But keeping it in mind of maybe if I have a Saturday and a Sunday to pick from, look, checking out the weather, seeing how it differs, and taking that into consideration could be beneficial. It kind of feels like a space shuttle launch, right? There's sort of a launch window. 
Yeah. Like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna launch it in this time frame, and you know, depending on the weather, we may scratch it at the last moment. Um, so it sort of feels like if you're trying to really optimize, it sort of feels like that, right? Where you're taking all these factors into account. Um, but you know, I think honestly, we talk about amateurs. Lower temperature is probably going to be one of the bigger factors uh, in terms of like if one day is better than the other. Like if the the weather's changing tomorrow, wait till tomorrow. Yeah, or don't wait, depending on what which way it's changing. On this topic, actually, uh, you mentioned previously that thinner riders, like the the physique of climbers, has a lot more surface area relative to body mass, so it's easier for them to cool off because they have more surface area to evaporate sweat from. Versus someone who's like me, like a sprinter, or bigger rider. So even for an amateur, we might might expect them to have a higher body mass index or something like that. So you could expect them to benefit more from even cooler temperatures. So I would say as long as your fingers aren't getting numb, cooler is better. And, and that's always been my experience as well. Yeah, I think that's totally, totally fair. So let's, uh, let's talk about equipment. Let's talk about our, our bike setup here. Um, and what, I mean, I think there's some things that are inherently obvious with this, which would be like, well, the lighter weight here is better. It's less, less mass to move up the hill several times. So this is a good thing. Lower rolling resistance is probably better a little bit. Um, again, speeds are low aerodynamics. It matters on the downhill maybe, but probably not for the bulk of your time. I'd be skeptical if you're going to make up too much time having a, particularly aerodynamic setup versus a lighter setup. I think lightweight because of the bulk of the climb, bulk of the times we spent climbing is going to be more valuable than aerodynamics. Sure. I, th- I think that lighter weight is definitely going to be better. And the main reason for this is because some 80 or 90% of the total energy that you put into the bike will go into lifting it upwards when you're on a climb, especially a steeper climb, like seven or 8%. If your speed is below 10 or 15 miles per hour, you're not really doing much aerodynamics and and the air resistance isn't doing much to push you backwards. So thinking about the, the equation for lifting a bike up a hill is just MGH. So the mass times the Mm -hmm. acceleration due to gravity times the height of the climb. So what of those can we control? We can control the height. Obviously the total height has to be the height of Everest. That's the whole point of the, the event, but we can't control the acceleration due to gravity. That's uh, it's fixed. Yeah, that's fixed for the surface of the Earth, at least. And the only thing in that equation we control is the total mass. So that's our own body mass. That's the mass of the bike. And then if we want to get a little more complicated, there's also this idea of the inertia in the wheels. So the rotation of the wheels has uh, a certain amount of energy built into it. So the, the weight spinning around some center axis, this is the rotational um, analogy to mass. And if you imagine something that is heavier that's spinning around a circle, it takes more energy to get that heavier thing moving than a lighter thing. And so that's the idea behind wheels that are specifically made for climbing or specifically made for uh, lightweight is the rim weight should be lower and that allows for the inertia to be lower on the wheels. That allows them to spin up quicker and you have less of this mass of uh, getting up to speed. So that can really be beneficial for if if you do have a climb where there are pitches or every time you U-turn, you will notice if you have light wheels on how much quicker you get back onto that climb versus if you have heavier wheels, it really feels like 
you're dragging to get up to speed. And that's the inertia, the weight of the wheels. Mm -hmm. So taking that into consideration, I don't know if your Everest attempt is worth getting specific climbing wheels, but if you have a couple wheel sets, uh, maybe one for racing, maybe one for training, or uh, you snagged an old pair from a friend or something, see which ones are lighter. And those are probably your best bet. I wouldn't really consider uh, anything a little bit deeper because like you said, Todd, the aerodynamic advantage of getting down the hill 15 seconds faster, 20 seconds faster is not really going to benefit relative to the ease at which you can go up the climb. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, even if you want to, you know, dig a layer deep on what you're saying, relatively speaking, even for two sets of wheels or wheels and tires that weigh the same, you want the one that has the light, you know, the least mass at the periphery. Correct. Yeah. So and now if we want to talk about tires or um, tires and tubes, so one good option is tubeless, although I think at this point the technology isn't good enough to have the tire weigh less than a clincher with the tube. So the, the big advantage of tubeless is that there's no tube. So you should be getting a weight benefit, but tubeless tires actually mm. you need more rubber you need more and you rubber. need more thread in order to make sure they seal. So the, the net benefit from a weight perspective is not really there. The main advantage of tubeless is th that you get less pinch flats. And you can run them at a lower pressure, so they're good for gravel events or mountain bike events. In theory, no tube should lower your rolling resistance depending on how it's all made, like the quality of it, theoretically at least. Yeah, so speaking of tubes specifically, one thing that I like to do is um, specialized cells, white, lightweight tubes for uh, road racing. And they're, they're not quite latex tubes, they're still butyl but they're really thin butyl tubes and they're somewhere in between. So there's latex tubes, which are super lightweight, but they also tend to flat pretty quickly, pretty easily. And also there are some particularities about how you install them. So one of my friends really liked using latex tubes for all the races and they, uh, they got more flats than the rest of us. And I think the specialized lightweight butyl tubes, those actually work really well. And I think they're 14, 15 bucks, which is, you know, twice as much as a standard tube, but they're definitely faster. So that could be a good option to throw into your tires the day before. And then in terms of tires specifically, actually, it's better to use a tire that's worn down. So for one, there's less rubber on a tire that has been rolling for a while. But two, actually, the hysteresis loop is smaller. So the hysteresis loop is the energy that goes into the front of the tire. If you imagine a tire is rolling around and it's about to touch the road, the rubber flexes under that pressure that is being applied when the weight is, when the tire is touching the road. And what happens is it, it flexes like a spring. And then as it travels around, it releases again when it lifts up from the road. And the energy put into flexing it when it first touches the ground is greater than the energy returned when it unflexes back to its original mm -hmm. position. And if you graph the force at the tire, you get this sort of circle oval shape, and that's called the hysteresis loop. And so the smaller the shape of the oval, the less energy that's lost. So you'll actually have a smaller hysteresis loop when you have less rubber. And that makes sense because there's less rubber to flex. There's less energy to be less lost. Less resistance. Yeah. yeah. So um, I remember speaking with a club rider who had done a, a climbing time trial. So they have some of these uh, big climbs in California, hour-long climbs, and they'll have a time trial up it in the off-season. And he put on brand new tires for that race, thinking, 
oh, they're brand new, of course they'll be faster, but actually brand new tires are the worst option that you could pick in terms of, uh, sh you know, should I use a worn down tire or a new tire? And um, the other thing you could do, and this is something that pros like to do, but uh, sometimes they get in trouble for it, is they, they'll use time trial tires or track tires on the road. And the reason for that is the rubber on those is very, very thin. And they're actually really grippy to help deal with the velodrome's uh, angled banking. But they also have basically no flat protection. So you'll get really low rolling resistance values, but you might flat. And this is the reason why a lot of uh, time trialists, this sort of the dramatic, oh, and he's in the yellow and he flatted and oh my gosh. It's, it's because they put track tires on his wheels and he flatted because he's on the road. Balancing that, they, they were willing to take the risk to get that lower rolling resistance value, but it, it backfired sometimes. So realizing that and picking the right tire choice, but there are some really thin tires that you could look into from, you know, probably all the brands have pretty good track tires or time trial tires that if you're going to use them for one day and you're willing to take a little more risk on getting a flat, they can really speed up your event. Although probably for an endurance event, you probably want to go the other way. So I'm sure the last thing you want to do is change a tire in the middle of climbing 29,000 feet. So that's the balance is, am I going to get a flat in these 137 miles that I'm going to be doing? Or can we get away with not having a flat? How, how bad or, is the road? How much gravel is there? How much glass is there? Things like that. How, how lucky do I feel? Yeah. Uh, did I, uh, you know, my lucky rabbit's foot, is it attached to my saddle or whatever? All right. So I think the gearing choice is obvious, right? It's probably going to be the lowest gear you can get. Like you want to have, you don't want to run out of gears. I mean, you're, you're probably going to run out of gears to a certain extent right? when your legs are just going to get tired, but you don't want to do that too early in the day. So I think lower, lower gear is going to be better. And I mean, honestly, do you really even need your big ring? Are you really going to pedal down the hill? I, I doubt it. So if you have adequate chain retention, I think one of some of these like uh, one by setups that you see on cyclocross bikes, if you can get a small enough front chain ring, which you usually can, that seems to be to me to be like the ideal setup is a one by with a little bit larger cassette. And then you're not, you're not too worried about pedaling down the hill, um, at, least, at least in terms, at least as far as I'm concerned, to make up time. And that's probably not worth your energy. Yeah. And I would say for a 7% grade, you don't have to really worry about pedaling down the hill too much. You usually have enough momentum. But I would say gearing is interesting. And gearing is a question of, so it seems like the, the grade of the climb is sort of more dependent on the total length of the total distance we're willing to ride in a single day. So if we're stuck at seven or 8%, we really should be picking gearing that allows us to ride at 80 cadence or higher throughout the entire event. And the reason for that is because of the accumulation of muscular fatigue below 80 cadence. If you remember from the human power generation episode, they said we were able to get the most power out at like 50, 60 cadence, but every single one of the people who were in the test complained of muscle fatigue. So, if you're going to be riding for 8, 10, 12, 16 hours, we don't want any muscle fatigue. So keeping the cadence 80, 90, even up to 100 really lowers that, that muscle fatigue and really uh, moves the fatigue onto the heart, which is this is an aerobic event. We're trying to get the, the aerobic system to work its best. So make sure that you pick gearing that allows you to keep that cadence up. So calculate it, go do a test run on the climb, get your 34, 32 tooth chain ring in the front and probably also your 32 tooth in the back and uh, be willing to just keep that cadence up the whole time. 
Yeah, I think that's probably key. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned aerobic event because I think it's a, a natural transition to talking about nutrition and energy expenditure and those those important aspects of actually putting this together, right? Because I think you can pick the perfect climb and, you know, get your bike lightweight and dialed in, but you got to power the bike up the hill and you got to have, you know, one, you have, you have to turn the pedals, but you have to have some fuel in your system to be able to turn those pedals and eating a big breakfast in the morning <laughs> isn't going to be enough. You got to figure out your fueling across the day. You got to figure out your caloric needs across the day. So one, you know, I think we want to lean on aerobic system. We want to lean on fat burning. So, you know, I just did some, some very crude calculations. Um, so you have to forgive me for how, for how crude these were. I was going for maximum simplicity here, uh, in terms of calculating things. I already did my math ahead of time. So there should be, you know, no embarrassing lack of ability to make a calculation. I did my math ahead of time, another episode and I got it completely wrong still. So I'm nervous All for right. you, Todd. All right. Well, we'll see what happens here. So let's say that you're going to ride an average of 215 watts, which implies an FTP. So I, I, I pegged that at, at about 70%, right? So upper endurance, low tempo kind of pace. Say you're going to do that. And so in, a, in any hour, that should amount to approximately 750 calories per hour that you would burn um, riding maintaining that pace. Okay. So then let's, let's assume that, you know, you're sufficiently efficient at burning fat that you can maintain 50% of your calories coming from fat at that level. You that see, sounds, see what I did there? That sounds reasonable. It's not crazy. It's, you know, it's probably the upper end of feasible and it also makes the math easy. So that would be, 375 calories from fat every hour, 375 calories from carbs every hour. We'll, we'll ignore protein as an energy source, although it probably would kick in in an event this long, but for simplicity, we'll ignore, or we'll just say that the contribution is so trivial that we really have to focus on getting our energy from fat or from carbohydrate sources. Okay. We'll also assume, because for most of us, it is true, even the leanest among us, that we have sufficiently much fat available to burn that that is not a limiting factor for an event this long. It's just like we have plenty of energy and fat available. It's just, it's a matter of accessing it. We can access it if we have some carbs to help us with that. That's available. We're not going to run out of fat. So that's not going to be a limiting factor. So we can continue for as many hours as we need. Let's call it 12 with, you know, accessing that fat at 375 calories per hour. No big deal. So then that says, well, okay, we're gonna, we might have some energy limitation to maintain this pace with carbohydrate fueling. And we know that, you know, if we're appropriately um, topped off in terms of our glycogen stores, potentially we have about 500 grams of glycogen, which is equivalent to 200 calories of energy. Um, 2,000 calories. Two, yeah, 2,000. Thank yep. you. There you go. Screwed it up. <laughs> so there, so you have 2,000 calories. You know, if you if you just use that alone and you could use that fully up, which is debatable whether or not you're actually able to do that, that would sustain you at this pace for a little over five hours. So you know, it's nobody's even close to that, um, and that's a pretty modest pace. So you have to go longer than that. And so let's say you had to go a full twelve hours to get 
you know, achieve your time. In that case, you'd probably need an, a, to intake during your ride um, an additional, at minimum, 2,500 calories of carbohydrates to stay level with the demand. That's pretty substantial. Yeah, I would say that's a lot. And so I would also well, say it's, oh. it's you probably have to eat more than that. No, absolutely. Because that, that implies that at the end of 12 hours, you're at zero glycogen or carbohydrate available, which is not a good, that's not a good state to be in. Like you probably need to have some buffer, but just assume, assume that's feasible and know that you probably need more. But even if, so if you just tried to target that, then so 2,500 calories from carbohydrates that you need. So that's a little bit more than 200 per hour. So that's a little bit more than 50 grams of carbs per hour. That's that's, basically two gel packets per hour consistently coming in. I don't think I would recommend gel packets for that duration. I think your gut might not be happy with you with all that sugar, but it's like point being, it's a substantial amount of carbohydrates that you have to consistently be taking in. And, you know, the reality is you're probably going to be pushing closer to 60, maybe even 70 grams per hour to stay ahead of the curve, so to speak, for your energy demand. Yeah, I would say 70 is a good goal. Uh, but of course, I lean into you should probably have more carbs than you might need. I think 70 is good. I think the idea of 215 watts, the the number that you're basing all this information on, let's go into that a little bit. So the I think the idea here is that from our training zones episode, we talked about how tempo is the the zone that you should actually be able to do basically indefinitely as long as you have mm-hmm. enough fuel. The 215 number, I, I assume, is the bottom of tempo. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I went conservative on that. It, what's interesting, I think, here is that, like, for example, Phil Guyman, he did 300 watts, and he, he weighs the same amount as me. He's, what, six inches taller than me? But he he averaged 300 watts, and so that's his tempo, and that's because his threshold is 400 watts Mm -hmm. and for the rest of us our our tempo or our threshold is a lot closer to 300 watts 320 watts something like that so the same math would put us around that 215 mark or 225 mark something like that yep absolutely so you know you can you're trying just to stick at that top end of endurance bottom end of tempo maybe you can push a little faster but then you're at that point you're starting to i start to move up tempo a little bit you're starting to put more demand uh, for carbohydrates for energy, and therefore you need to do more to replenish that. So there, there's some balance too. There's some push and pull. If you start to go too fast, and if you deplete your carbohydrates too early, or you, you know get in too much of a deficit, then then you might be in trouble in terms of maintaining pace. Yeah, and if there's something we can learn from, I believe his name was Stephen Abraham. He was the one who was going for the year hour record or the the year. Uh, distance record oh yes that's a a whole different deal yeah so his big thing was he did 200 watts always and he he actually i think put out a statement about people riding with him and he actually encouraged people not to ride with him because they would throw him off from his pacing and he he tried to lean as much as possible on fat burning and the point was if he went over 200 watts he would incur too much carbohydrate specific work and then he would run out of his carbohydrate stores before he planned to 
So it, it is actually seriously something to consider and something to take seriously is if you're, oh, it doesn't matter if I jump up to 300 watts for a little bit on the climb this round, you will be paying for that at the end of the effort. So having the, the emotional and overall psychological maturity to say, we're pacing at 215, we're going to hold 215, we're not going to go over it. Being able to do that is really important because you have to protect those carb stores. Yeah, absolutely right. Carbs, carbs you will run out of. That is a finite fuel source for two reasons, right? You only you have a fixed amount of glycogen that's not indefinite compared to fat, which is relatively indefinite. You're just not going to run out, and, and you know certainly not not in that length. And you can only take so much in while you're exercising, uh, and and process it and actually utilize it. So those two things are super important to pay attention to and. This is more of a, a freight train type of an effort. Right? Slow, slow and steady wins the race, so to speak. Here, right? this is not a, a sports car. It's not an F one race. It's not a crit. You know, you're not putting out the punchy effort. It's a. Yeah, I was thinking slow more and like, steady. I was thinking more like a horse drawn carriage than than a freight train. Yeah, even. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's probably more more accurate. Gentle, delicate, and uh, just uh, just keep chugging along, and you know, we'll consistent. see what happens when we get there. Yeah, I think that's the, the important part, right? Is the so there's there's that part, and we mentioned this before, is the hydration piece too, which I think is going to be challenging. It's almost with this, I believe we've talked about this on prior episodes, but the concept of trying to approximate your sweat rate based on a few rides, how much you sweat, pre and post ride weight, and you know knowing how much you consume during that ride. To give you some indication, uh, I think you can see where this would come into play for an event like this, where you need to be out there, you need to maintain your hydration, having some indication of what your base sweat rate is, uh, would be super useful to help you and guide your hydration. I, mean, I don't think you're going to hop off the end of a cl- every climb and say like, "Hey, how much how much do I weigh right now?" It's not practical. So just knowing beforehand or having some sense of what that base level sweat rate is. Surprising amount of athletes, not only to Jason's point, are under consuming carbohydrates, but are also dehydrated when they start their workouts. So making sure you know, your your base level assumption about your sweat rate and uh, hydration needs may well be a little bit off base. You may be already like, under consuming a little bit. So getting some sense, at least of a baseline level uh, is super useful. Yeah, that's interesting. The The classic technique for that is to weigh yourself after a, a moderate one hour ride and weigh yourself before, weigh yourself after. And the difference in that should be approximately the the weight of the water you lose. And then you can back calculate that. I, I think it's likely that something like two bottles is two bottles per hour is something that we could realistically agree on as something close to most people's sweat rate. Yeah, and then you have weird other effects, right? When you uh, break down glycogen, that releases some water as well, right? Like for every gram of glycogen that you're using, you release three grams of water. Yeah, there's some other effects happening there. Yeah, and then on top of the hydration part, and actually there have been some people who have actually died from drinking only water during these ultra-endurance events. So you get, you drink water. Right, so... 
your salt concentration. You don't put the sodium back in, but you put the water back in. And what happens is our blood is actually more interested in maintaining the sodium content and more interested in maintaining the the concentration of our micronutrients than it is interested in maintaining the fluid levels. So as we lose sodium, our blood doesn't know what to do because we're only replacing the fluid part. And so then we end up actually diluting our blood so much that um, it could be fatal or cause some really uh, detrimental health effects. So making sure that at least one of those two bottles has some electrolyte powder in it is probably a good bet. Yeah, your your kidneys are really good at regulating that stuff for the most part. So you can you know, put put something in and let your kidneys take care of it. I was, uh, was at a conference once and uh, talking about this very topic in terms of hydration and optimizing for sport. And the speaker was a nephrologist. And for for those of you who are not familiar with that term, it's a, a doctor that specializes in the kidney. And he he basically made the comment along the lines of, well. The dumbest kidney that any one of us has is smarter than the smartest sports scientists in terms of managing your hydration needs and the electrolyte balance for you. And it's like, yeah, you're fair point, right? Your your kidneys are, have evolved over a long time to do exactly that one thing and manage your fluid balance. So give, give them the opportunity to do so. Don't try to outsmart them. Yeah, I guess it's more about giving it what it needs and it'll figure out the rest. So if, yeah, it'll it'll balance it. Put some salt in. Put some water in, and then you will uh, pee, you will pee. A little yeah. bit of potassium, right? Uh, a banana yep. or two could be beneficial. Yeah, but the big the big big thing is going to be uh, sodium chloride. So yeah, let your let your kidneys do what they do, and you're just make sure you drink enough, and don't make it and make sure it's also not just water. Right, and and going back to the. The glucose and the hydration fueling, pre-fueling, the night before, the day before, the maybe even the week before, you should be looking to intake kind of as much sugar as you can. And I don't want to say that because normally eating a lot of sugar isn't healthy, but there is a protocol for stage races for big road races where you're eating 75 grams of carbs every two hours. Normally they'll say half your body weight in kilos in grams of carbs per hour pre-fueling mm-hmm. for your event. If you think about, say, my glycogen stores are empty and we need to get them to that 500 gram mark, how many hours of that pre-fueling do I need to do? Essentially, you need to pre-fuel the entire day beforehand. So get up, have a big breakfast. A few hours later, have a big midday snack. A few hours later, have a big lunch and be willing to put in more than you think and your weight will go up and oh that's not good for everesting we don't want the weight to go up but actually you're just full of energy you need the fuel yeah Yeah. exactly it's like it's like saying that you don't want your your fuel tank full in your car before a road trip because you're concerned you know the extra weight of the car is going to make it less efficient yes but how are you going to get to your destination right so i would say with glycogen, with glucose, with hydration as well. The day before, make sure you're really packing it in, but also spread it out over the day. If you ate all 500 grams at once, you wouldn't absorb most of it. Your body takes time to to build the glycogen. So you have to, throughout the whole day, be conscious of you know what you're putting in and slowly build up those glycogen stores throughout the entire day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's the key because if you, if you put it in all too fast, you, you have no benefit to doing it. Same thing with like too much water. Your kidneys just get 
you know, or too much hydration, too much uh, sports drink, your kidneys just get overwhelmed and can't handle it. Um, so you have to sort of pace it as it's coming in. So like, you know, we say like a bottle or two an hour, that doesn't mean when the clock says 59 minutes that you just pound two bottles, you know, to distribute it over time to make sure that it's actually effective. I would say a good way to, to deal with the hydration is making sure the bottle is empty after X number of, of times up the climb. So say you had a 15 minute climb and you want to do two bottles an hour, every other, every climb it better, you better drink half a bottle. And I think even a half a bottle's worth drinking every 15 minutes would be fine. You could potentially uh, drink half a bottle on the descent, each descent, something like that could be a really good pacing strategy if the, the climb is the right length. Just uh, incrementing into quarters of an hour is a good way to make sure you hit the hydration goal for that period. Yeah, or set your, you know, set yourself an alarm that goes off every 15 minutes. Yeah, so Gar- you, you remember. Garmin has that feature, I believe, on mm-hmm. most of their headsets. So yeah, any any of the, there's many ways to do it, but just reminding yourself. I know also, I think Camelback has a thing, not that you would wear Camelback, but if you're into that, they have a thing that like, tells you like in line in the and the hose for the hydration pack like hmm. sort of tells you about your hydration pacing. That's pretty cool. So, so you're ready to do it now? Tomorrow maybe? Uh, or maybe 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 a couple days after you can uh, top off your glycogen stores and check the weather? Yeah, I'm not I'm not too convinced that I'm the right candidate for Everesting. I I like the idea. I like the theory of it, but I I am a road racer, but I'm I'm a four hour road racer, not a not a twelve hour road racer. I know it's very grueling. I'm sure it's very rewarding. Get your you know get your friends to take lots of pictures of you with the snot all all over your face and the the faces of despair each time you come down. Yeah, Todd, I'm I'm not so sure this is going to be my next week's uh, event. All right, well you know. Put a put a bookmark there for another day, perhaps. Yeah, um, maybe when I don't know. I, I guess even I'd want to prep even more and maybe lose a few kilos and see if uh, see if I can make it a little easier on myself. Fair enough. I I totally agree with you. I think there's some some prep definitely involved. I think there's probably a, a training approach that goes with it, not just uh, hopping out on the bike one day and saying like, you know what, I'm just gonna do this. I mean. By all means, more power to you if you're you're that motivated and ambitious. I can say that I am not. I would probably uh, plan for this for a few months to to make sure I felt pretty confident that I would be successful. Yeah, I guess on on that topic. Although I would, I am definitely scared to do Everesting. I I'll say that. But I, if someone says, "Oh yeah, I did it," here's the Strava file. That would be absolutely mad respect for them for doing it. So it's it is a big accomplishment, but it's. Potentially not something I would uh, have on my uh, Palmares. Fair enough. Maybe not for everyone, but uh, hopefully what we were just talking about, if you're you're feeling up to it or inspired or um, otherwise uh, just kicking it around in the back of your mind, hopefully we gave you some, some useful information, a few things to ponder. Uh, and maybe that helps you get a little bit closer to taking the leap and giving it a go. Yeah, get out there and... Go get it and uh, make sure you post the ride on Strava so everyone knows that you did it. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll absolutely give you mad props when you finish it. Cool. And, of course, if you're going to do that, you know, as, as I always like to say, well, before I say that, I don't, I, maybe you should listen to us while you're doing it. But maybe not. Maybe it would distract you from, uh, from what was at hand. Um, and at any rate, 
if you are enjoying listening to us, please do uh, share with your friends, post a review, wherever it is that you do listen to us. We do appreciate that and enjoy your feedback and take it seriously as we try to consistently produce a high quality podcast. And with that, I'll say, especially if you're Everesting, keep the rubber side down. Thanks for listening.